A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. You've probably all heard of Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, and Doc Holliday, and certainly many more outlaw heroes of the Wild West. These are the highwaymen, the thieves, the murderers, and the conmen who have, despite their criminal record and their dirty dealings, somehow captivated the popular imagination. Hollywood makes movies about them, Warren Zevon writes songs about them, and writers continue to make their stories the stuff of legend. The Wild West as a mythological place would be nothing without the outlaw hero. So what has propelled these figures to fame? Well, part of it, I think, is the paper trail that they leave behind. Court records, newspaper accounts, oral histories, and even personal memoirs. Without these stories, without them recorded, they're lost, and many a tale has gone untold lost to the past for lack of reliable testimony. Rarely do we hear of a story of a bandit who has exploits as fabled as Black Bart or as thoroughly chronicled as Wild Bill Hickok, and yet they're missing from our popular narrative of the West. We've covered a lot of stories on this show and on others about Wild West outlaw heroes, but today we're going to uncover one that I don't think you've heard of. Have you ever heard of Hanging Charlie Flynn? Perhaps you might know him better as Charlie Mortimer or one of his many other aliases. Mortimer was a thief of some renowned who has languished in the doldrums of California's history until now. Matthew Bernstein, the author of Silver King, the biography of George Hurst, joins the show to talk about his latest biography of Charlie Flynn. Matt is a friend of the show. He's appeared here before, and I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to our talk about George Hurst. Matt has the ability to contour the American West in fun and illustrative ways. And today, our conversation about Mortimer, you're going to get more than a biography of a wanted criminal. You're going to get a portrait of San Francisco and Sacramento in the years surrounding the Civil War. You'll get an inside look at San Quentin Prison and the correction system in California's Wild West. And you'll also come into contact with Mark Twain at the moment he transitions from Samuel Clemens into the voice of the frontier. Matt teaches at Los Angeles City College and elsewhere. He's a prolific author. I mentioned the Hearst biography already, but he's also recently finished a history of the War of 1898 that will no doubt be of interest to listeners. Before we get started on the story of Charlie Flynn, here's a short warning. This episode includes details of several crimes, not least gruesome murders and violent robberies. If that's okay with you, listen on. If that is likely to upset you, well, you know what to do. Well, welcome back to the show, Matt. It's great to have you back here. Um, I want to start at the very beginning of the story of any story about a person, I guess. And that's just, can you tell us who Charlie Flynn is? Or or maybe I should say Mortimer. Who's Mortimer? Mortimer slash Charlie Flynn. Uh, Mortimer was the alias he used um, until they eventually figured out his real name, uh, was Primarily a pickpocket in San Francisco and Sacramento and was a bit of an itinerant drunk. Um, graduated eventually to highwayman and his crimes became wilder and wilder. Uh, he was in and out of San Quentin. Uh, he was arrested up in Northern California, led a jailbreak. Uh, he tangled with cops, with femme fatales. Uh, he led a band of criminals 
for a gang of criminals in Virginia City, Nevada, and ultimately fell in love with a rather sinister woman. And it all went downhill after there. His uh, crimes became a little bit more bloodthirsty and blood-curdling. He's a real-life outlaw hero, and it's not as pretty as, well, any of the stories that might spring to mind immediately. I mean, none of them are pretty, like Jesse James. You know, robbery, murder is not pretty, but somehow it gets romanticized in the Wild West, I guess. And then and then other times in this story, it definitely doesn't. So maybe we start with one of his first jobs uh, when it was called the Mortimer Group. They got they got their start in the Comstock load in Nevada and uh, then later on around Sacramento when things got hot in Nevada. How did they swindle people in the in the early days or what was this kind of like go to method of swindling people? Well, Charlie was one of those guys who could be extraordinarily charming uh, as a bona fide psychopath. He had that ability. Um, he knew how to blend in his main uh, way of swindling money was oh he'd uh stop you late at night you know and he's well dressed and he's well spoken and he's like oh excuse me sir uh can you tell me where the nearest lodging house is uh and it'd be like the guy would be put at ease and he points out he's like well you go down and then charlie's silence and suddenly there's a dagger in his hand and the dagger is at the guy's throat and it's a give me all your money sort of thing your life or your money, and they'd fork it over, and then he'd run away and blend in. Um, he was very good at that. He was also very good at getting someone drunk or finding someone who was slightly inebriated and suggesting that they have more drinks. Uh, his modus operandi, or what he would prefer, is he really liked to rob drunk people or sleeping people. That was even better. Um, he didn't want anyone to recognize him, or if they did recognize him, uh, it was a rather bleary recollection. And he was pretty good at changing his appearance, too. Yeah, so one of the things that really struck me about the book is its depiction of place. So San Francisco in particularly is a spot where Mortimer gets into a lot of hot water. Can you give us a, a little bit of a sense of the city in the 1860s? Because I think our impression, if we if, if anyone knows San Francisco today, is definitely not what it was back before the Civil War. I mean, it's a it's a boom town at that stage, it, but it is full of vice and it's pretty grimy, right? Yeah. Uh, San Francisco, what they had, what they called the Barbary Coast. Uh, and that was infamous at the time. And it was sort of a nod to Africa's piratical coast. And the idea was vice flourished. Uh, this was the time of uh, brothels, uh, gambling. So this was dice and cards. Uh, liquor was everywhere. Um, if there was anything you wanted, anything could be had. But it came as danger. And this was coming off the uh, San Francisco's wild 1850s, which had two vigilance committee uprisings. And the vigilance committees had formed to expel or hang the criminals that had run wild in the city because you didn't have much of a police presence. And in fact, a lot of the police were corrupt themselves. So they would wink at the gambling halls and the houses of pleasure. Uh, as long as they got their cut, everything would be fine. Now, some police officers were stalwart uh, and some were fighting the good fight. But Charlie uh, was able to find some of the more corrupt elements and they would cut him deals. They would tip him to good Indians, as they called it. That was slang for a good mark or a good job. Um, so he was not protected because not every police officer was his friend, but there were certain ones that he could work with, and he uh, he was able to benefit himself through that. It's amazing to think that the ultimate goal of Charlie Flynn or Mortimer is to blend in and 
San Francisco is a, a big city and he's not a particularly conspicuous character. How does he manage to get caught in San Francisco? Well, perhaps uh, his most famous uh, chase uh, happens in, I believe it was 1864. And this is really interesting time period because this is Civil War California. And California did send a number of companies, uh, mostly like Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. Um, but it also meant that some of the more uh, strapping heroic men were not in California at the time, the uh, the peace officers and the law officers. So for a guy like Charlie, he could kind of run wild. Uh, so at one point in San Francisco, one of the corrupt police officers tips him to a party where the mayor's right-hand man is gathering donations for the political cause uh, at a popular saloon. And Charlie wanders in, and he drinks with everybody, and he ingratiates himself. And he eventually, uh, being very friendly, walks uh, the drunken clerk with all the money uh, back to his uh, home on Mina Street, which happens to be the same street that Mark Twain is living on at the time. And Charlie sees him home, and then Charlie goes and gets a haircut and he changes his appearance. And now it's something like seven in the morning. They've been drinking all night and Charlie stops at the home and there's a young lady who says like, oh yeah, he's here, but you know, let me check with the mistress of the house and make sure, you know, like you can go visit him because Charlie says, oh, I'm here on business. Eventually they all let him in. Um, according to the popular histories and the newspaper reports, Charlie then chloroforms uh, the mayoral clerk. You know, like he takes a rag and is doused with uh, trichloramine, if I remember correctly, and, you know, knocks him out. At least that's the clerk's rendition. Um, what probably happened is he was just so inebriated that Charlie was able to, like, steal his rings and steal his money without anyone being the wiser, the clerk needed some excuse rather than I was so drunk when he talked to the police in the papers. Anyways, Charlie is able to steal rings and watches and money, and it ends up being about a $1,500 job. And because this is a very prominent person, uh, the police throw out a, uh, and the governor, I think it's about a $300 award. And so now he's the most wanted man in the Bay Area. And he travels about 30 miles south to the rural town of Belmont, where he has made his headquarters. And he's smart that he's smart that way. Uh, he doesn't stay in San Francisco, even though he loves the city. Um, he has a headquarters where no one's going to find him. But uh, the police end up arresting a pal of his who turns traitor as Charlie describes it, and gives away where his house is. And so Captain of Detectives Isaiah W. Lees sends down one of his top guys, Detective George W. Rose. And Rose has a bad reputation. And Rose finds Charlie, but he decides he's not immediately going to arrest him. He's going to find where the money is first. And Charlie knows this. And Charlie starts stringing together a plan and he says okay well the money i've planted out in this forest so they get on a train to san jose and they go into the forest they walk about a mile and now charlie's digging up the money and rose has got a couple pistols on him and somehow you know like uh, they need light and charlie is failing at lighting these matches and detective rose has to show him how it's done and that's the opportunity that Charlie needed. And bam, suddenly his uh, hands are around Rose's neck. There's a struggle for the pistols. Uh, Rose loses. Charlie beats the hell out of him. Rose managed to stick his hand into Charlie's face. And Charlie bites his little finger with such ferocious force that it's all but amputated and later will be. He will be a nine-fingered detective bent on revenge. Uh, Charlie lets him live, or rather, leaves him for dead. Mark Twain 
who is now on the case, describes uh, Rose crawling for like two miles to a local farmhouse uh, where the farmers notify the police. Uh, mind you, now Charlie is like, now he's got uh, cops, bounty hunters, vigilantes, everybody's hunting for him. He manages to uh, uh, get away from a vigilante band by uh, shooting one in the hand and one in the foot from a distance. They're shooting at him too. Um, he escapes into some brackish water, um, eventually takes a midnight run to San Francisco, figuring no one's actually searching for him there. They all think he's gone uh, south and east and west. Instead, he goes north, hangs out that for a while, and then uh, escapes to Napa. So in this time period, um, he's committed uh, a very high-profile crime, and he's got everyone looking for him. He's now the most wanted criminal in the Bay Area. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I, I, gotta, I gotta say, Mark Twain's writing on this makes it infinitely more interesting uh, just because it's Mark Twain, of course. And, you know, he's writing about Mortimer, Mortimer in San Francisco. And wh what do you think the, the authors take on the assault and the robbery and all the other outlaw antics are that, you know, I mean, because he, he does, he's one of the, the chroniclers of Mortimer's story here. What's his take? Well, I believe Twain felt that this is my ticket into greater fame. Um, you know, at this point, like, it's 1864. Uh, Samuel Clemens had only made the transformation to Mark Twain the prior year in Virginia City where he didn't run into Mortimer, or at least he didn't know he had if he had. Um, but he was definitely looking at crime. Uh, the more sensational, the better. Uh, so he becomes Mark Twain crime reporter. You know, that's one of the things he's best at. So when Charlie, you know, does this audacious robbery of the mayoral clerk and everyone's looking for him, Twain himself is like, okay, let's go. You know, like he's going to... Uh, make this the top story in San Francisco. And then, of course, it gets wilder and wilder, especially when Rose gets in there. And uh, Twain paints Rose as a hero, and he paints Mortimer as the villain. Uh, Mortimer, of course, is the villain, but Rose himself, you know, isn't the uh, isn't the best police officer in the world, let's say. Um, but Twain is fashioning the narrative you know, of the hero and the villain and painting uh, Rose as out for a reckoning, you know, as they described uh, Wyatt Earp and Tombstone, you know, in the classic uh, 
Kurt Russell movie. Um, but yeah, Quain definitely has that idea. And he says of Mortimer that Mortimer is the worst criminal in the state. I'm paraphrasing here. The worst criminal in the state. And it may take the police 10 years to capture him, but capture him they will. Um, so he's also bringing in the tension. And interestingly, uh, though he will be captured and released and caught and released, uh, for the big crime, it will be about 10 years later. The Santa Cruz treasury job is that big, big heist. So what happens to Mortimer there? This was Mortimer's high watermark. Um, you know, at this point, we had seen Mortimer. He led a uh, a band of criminals. He'd done a whole lot of pickpocketing. He'd, you know, robbed sleeping people. He'd done, you know, a whole bunch of uh, small-time crimes. This is the first time he gets away with uh, well over $10,000. So while Mortimer was in San Quentin, after the robbery of the mayoral clerk, uh, you know, they eventually do catch him. He, uh, you know, he's in jail and like many, it's sort of like finishing school for criminals. You know, he's talking with everybody um, and they've figured out a plan. Like once we're out on the outside, we're going to meet in Santa Cruz, the uh, beautiful California seaside town. And Inside the building that has the courthouse also has the Santa Cruz treasury. And they figured out that it's weakly defended. You know, like everyone just like locks up at the, the end of the day and they go home. There are no posted guards. And they're like, this is a bonanza waiting to happen. So Mortimer writes about this in his memoir and he gives everybody aliases. It's supposed to be a three-man job but one of them chickens out on the night of the robbery. And that's okay. Uh, Mortimer, he breezes into town. He has a few drinks at saloons. He meets with his uh, one remaining Confederate on this. And they say, okay, the other guy backed out. Are we still going to do this? Yeah, we're still going to do this. So the treasurer is a guy named Blakely. And, you know, they're kind of watching him, you know, through the windows. Uh, Blakely is the last one to leave. He's locking up. And then in classical Mortimer style, the knife to his throat, silence, you know, they get him inside. Uh, he's like, okay, well, the silver's over here. They're like, damn the silver. We want the gold. Um, they get him into the treasury vault. Uh, they get all the money. It's about $14,000 um, in gold and silver and greenbacks. And then they ask, okay, well, what are we going to do with them? And the other guy says, slough him up with the gopher. And Mortimer loves his slang. And he explains that slough him up with the gopher means lock him up in the vault. So they lock Blakely into his own vault. And Mortimer's really good at gagging people with handkerchiefs and knots. And he can figure out, and he's done this before, like how long it'll take someone based upon how tight he makes things. And he makes things super tight with Blakely. So they get the money. Um, they get about a mile outside of town and by a creek. They dump out all the money. They whack up, as they call it, which means they divided the money. Um, and they say, okay, uh, let's rendezvous in the Bay Area in a couple days, and I'll contact you. If you don't con and if you don't hear from me, that means I've been locked up and you do everything you can to get me out. That's part of the deal. Um, they both get up north, uh, Mortimer slash Charlie slash Flynn has a wonderful time with some free and easy women. Um, he's also got a girlfriend at this point, Harry, but uh, Mortimer's never been the most faithful sort of guy. Um, so anyways, he has a lot of fun. He goes to visit his friend. His sister said, oh, you just missed him. Mortimer says, okay, well, tell him I was just here. So, you know, they figured out they're caught or they're not caught. Um, Mortimer at this point has buried the, the most of the money, you know, near a farmhouse south. And now he's thinking, I kind of want to that money elsewhere because they had a friend uh, drive them in a wagon. He's like, why would I let someone know around, like whereabouts the money is? So he goes to move the money. At this point in time, 
San Francisco is a hornet's nest of activity. Everyone's talking about the Santa Cruz robbery. People are looking at Mortimer. People kind of suspect him. Uh, but he's going to move the money. And while he does, he sees some people are following him. Uh, so he hikes into the mountains. He gets into the brush. He eventually loses them, reburies the money, strolls back into San Francisco with a little bit of money in his pocket, but knowing where the thousands are buried. And for the first time, he's on top of the world. He can spend money like water, and uh, he's very happy with his accomplishments. And as he sees other pickpockets doing their thing, he's like, well, I don't actually have to rob anybody anymore. I've kind of won the game. But he still does for the fun of it. An interesting transitional point in his life, though, too, because it's not the first time that he thinks about going straight. I mean, you, you mentioned there that he's in and out of San Quentin, and I want to talk a little bit more about his time in prison, because I think you give an interesting portrait of San Quentin, but uh, Charlie Flynn does think about going straight and he's got a couple of opportunities to do it. Uh, how does that play out? You know, he was born uh, outside of Boston, not a wealthy family, but a stand up family. Uh, they were a family of tailors um, and he had uh, decent jobs growing up and then he decides, after he'd spent some time in basically juvie uh, for robbery, that, you know, he was going to abandon his whole family, he didn't tell them, and he went to California. But throughout, you know, that was in 1858, throughout his criminal career, which lasts like 15 years on the West Coast, he thinks about his mother, uh, he thinks about his family, his sisters and his brothers, and he thinks about one last score, and then I'll go home. And time and time again, this happens. And he pulls off a number of big scores. Um, there was a, he met a woman, and he never, give, never gives her name because he's very careful not to turn traitor on anyone who doesn't deserve it. Um, and she was engaged to a guy that she was actually planning to rob, but she needed some help. So Charlie steps in. They're able to rob the guy. They get about $2,000. They divide it. And Charlie thinks, okay, I'm going to take this money. I'm going to get back to San Francisco. I'm going to get on a ship. I'm going to go back to uh, Boston. And I'm going to see dear old mom. No one will be the wiser. But Charlie has other loves besides robbing people and sleeping with loose women. Uh, he also likes to gamble and he likes to drink. So he gets into San Francisco. And he says, by the time steamer day arrives, you know, when the big ship is going to, you know, take them uh, around the horn, he has lost most of his money. Now, he did stash some away from himself so he couldn't spend it on a bender. Uh, but it turns out it's not enough by the time it comes there, which forces Charlie to rob again. And this is the pattern we're going to see time and time again. He wants to go back to at least he says he does uh but he can't stop himself from making terrible decisions and there's a, a decision that he makes in his love life that's interesting as well about halfway through the book we get introduced to his girlfriend carrie who you've already mentioned and you call it in the book that he was love struck uh and that that's a term that kind of rises and falls uh like maybe like some relationships do you know but it's a very volatile relationship it's a murderous relationship it's a relationship filled with jealousy tell us about Kerry and mortimer and the the love affair that they have like you say shows up into the book about halfway through and then she turns everything on its head because at this point we've like grown accustomed to mortimer like all right this guy is a professional thief um he's a pickpocket when he can be he's very careful um, but he stops into a Barbary Coast saloon slash bordello, and he sees the new girl, Carrie, and she's a looker. Uh, she's tall. She's got very nice attributes, and she's also a, I wouldn't say damsel, but a lady in distress, and Mortimer recognizes that, and he likes to play the hero on occasion. You know, like some of his victims... You know, it's like, hey, that watch is a keepsake. He lets them keep the watch. 
Um, if he's going to rob somebody and like he's kind of met them and, you know, they got drunk together. Well, he finds some money in a boot. He doesn't take all the money. He'll leave them some, you know. So in some respects, he's got a little bit of a heart. Um, and with Carrie, and she also has a uh, young son, young son with her. He's like, all right, you know, like you're in like one of the worst places in the city, you know, and like she's uh, she's sick. He's like, let's get you a doctor. He uh, does his best to nurse her back to health, get sick himself in the process. Um, obviously, they were spending a lot of time together uh, and then decides, you know what? Let's go straight. Um, so, you know, they bounce around from town to town. He works as a lumberjack. Uh, he does a little tailoring. Um, he works on a farmhouse. And in almost every instance, uh, Harry ends up stealing a little trinket here or there from their employer or from his employer. And Charlie, you know, is all righteous anger. And it's like, that's going to be missed. This is going to get us into trouble. And it does. Of course, this is Charlie's take on it. Carrie, you know, is going to say, oh, it was Charlie. And once the newspapers, once Charlie gets so famous that the newspapers are cracking down all of his movements over the last years, they're going to say almost all of this was uh, Charlie's idea. But the fact is, once Charlie's out of the picture, uh, it's Carrie being arrested here and there and there for theft. Um, she herself is a kleptomaniac. And it's just one of those situations where crazy attracts crazy. You know, when they meet each other, they find we are very similar. And if you're a pickpocket like Mortimer, like uh, how many relationships, not just, you know, for a night or two, but actual like relationships are you going to have with someone that not only enjoys this, but wants to join in? So they're attracted to each other and Charlie gets to show her the ropes. Um, once he's done with them going straight, because it's just not working, he decides to ride the wave and it's like, well, if she's going to keep stealing stuff from people. Let's show her how to do it correctly. And her uncle Bill gets involved and they become a three-man team for a while. Uh, they start hanging around San Francisco. They go to circuses. Uh, he shows her how to work as part of a three-man team and if you ever saw the uh movie focus with will smith and gerald mcraney um it shows you a little bit of like how pickpockets can operate it's like you use the bump you know it's like excuse me sir someone hits the shoulder and he's looking there and then you know someone takes the uh the wallet out at the same time it's very bold but they also are very good at like slipping off uh watches off of people and sometimes you have to like remove the ring at the same time as they call them. They call them ringers, you know, and it's a, it's very tricky. They're not always very good at it, but you know, someone's like, Hey, you got my uh, watch. Sometimes you get a punch in the face or someone, sometimes you get an indignant, charming looking woman that says, Oh no, sir, I didn't do anything like that. Anyway. So they, uh, they operate fairly successfully uh, for a good stretch of time, like a, uh, uh, well over a year. And at this point in time, uh, Carrie is Charlie's common law wife. They never actually got married. In fact, uh, she uh, had been married before. Um, but, you know, everyone considers them man and wife. So Carrie gets involved in a lot of other ways as well. But uh, perhaps it's a good time to pause because before things go downhill with Carrie, uh, Mortimer is going to spend time in the clink, so to speak, uh, in San Quentin after he gets caught for the Santa Cruz treasury job. So maybe you could take us through that that process of him getting caught for the, the, the biggest crime of his of his life. And then how formative is San Quentin for him? I mean, you called it earlier a finishing school, but he's going to be in and out of San Quentin for some time. How formative is the, the prison system in his life? Well, first time he goes to jail in San Quentin uh, was trying to think of it was 1863 or 1864, but it was definitely in that period. And uh, that was a uh, that was a really good period in his life because he goes through a very long list of the known associates there. And this includes uh, 
Tiburcio Vasquez, um, whom uh, John Bosnecker will write uh, the great history of him called Bandido. Uh, Ike McCollum is there, a famous highwayman. There's a whole bunch of people that they can sort of like learn the ropes together. And Charlie is able to do really well in San Quentin because Charlie uh, works as a tailor. He's got all those skills. So he works in the tailor shop. And during the Civil War, he actually is helping to make burlap sacks, which are then sent to Union soldiers on the front lines. And two of his brothers in this time, uh, Frank and Will, are actually, uh, they've enlisted. Uh, they're part of the 38th Massachusetts. So in my romantic mind, I'd like to think that some of these stacks that Charlie has made go to his brothers. The odds of that are astronomical. Uh, but Charlie's able to do very well. You're actually paid a little bit of money for working in the prison system. And he uses this money to uh, procure better food for himself. Um, and he likes to eat in the tailor shop uh, rather than in the uh, with the general populace. And he's got a little coterie that usually uh, stick with him. And there's one big prison break in 1863 or 64, or people refer to it as the big break. He calls it the escapade in his memoirs. And Charlie doesn't participate. Um, you know, this is Tiburcio Vasquez is part of it. Um, and it's well written about. I don't focus on it too much because this is one of those capers um, that everyone has sort of done. Uh, but Charlie sticks it out and um, observes it through the windows. Later on, uh, there will be another prison break. Uh, this is the second time he's in San Quentin. In, um, he does a stretch between 1865 and 1871. Um, and this he'll call the mush break. And at the time, uh, San Quentin started making this uh, this cornmeal mush, uh, this like new dish, and everyone gets riled up because you know it's so bad. Of course, if you got uh, well over a hundred hardened criminals all angry suddenly, you know that's a recipe for trouble. Uh, Charlie later divulges that like no, the leaders of the band didn't have much of a problem with the cornmeal mush. They just decided to use it as a focal point to help stir everybody up. Uh, so this is another prison break where Charlie decides he's not going to participate in because he's going to serve his time as best he can, walk out the front doors as a free man, which he'll eventually do. But he describes the mush break. He describes that, uh, you know, the cons or convicts um, knock a guard over the head um, and it's a rainy night, and they're all going to make a break for it. Um, but the captain of the guards is too good, um, and he gets everybody under control, and a whole bunch of people get shot in the process, but eventually uh, the uh, the prisoners are cowed. Um, and Charlie describes the aftermath, that uh, the ringleaders are tied to the ladder. It's a diabolical place of torture. Um, and they're thrown into the dungeon, and the ones that come out alive, and some of them don't, are crawling with maggots, um, you know, and just like have lost their minds. He describes really terrible prison scenarios. Um, it does sound like torture, and one actually feels for Charlie is like, okay, stick in the tailor shop, do your job, uh, don't participate in the breaks. And he actually does stop uh, some of the guys in the tailor shop from going out. Um, he's like, hey, those crazy crazy guards might shoot you during the mush break. So let's just stay in here until they come for us. Um, so he seems to have the uh, best criminal instincts um, while he's in prison and is able to uh, get through it in one piece. There is a sense, too, though, that in San Quentin, there's this lack of humanity. And when he does a long stint in prison he comes out and he's more murderous because in the 1870s there are a couple of murders that he orchestrates and uh and they they really that's the thing that's going to land him in in the biggest trouble of his life is that fair to say yeah that'd be fair to say like um what's left of the uh 
lightness of his soul when he comes out of prison in 1871 is not so much. I mean, it's going to be tied to uh, Harry's uh, jealous instincts as well. Uh, the murders themselves are going to revolve around uh, ladies of the night that uh, the both of them are looking to rob, but are going to get much darker, much quicker. Um, you know, and uh, at that point in time, uh, you know, Charlie, uh, you don't have as much sympathy for him. Um, you're able to see him uh, throughout a good stretch of this as a extremely charismatic and charming psychopath. Now, a lot of people uh, flip the term psychopath and sociopath, but because I had to do a, a you know psychoanalysis of Charlie, I had to look into these terms. Some people think that a sociopath is the more charming version, just like, you know, without any sort of empathy. Um, it's actually a psychopath that is able to uh, fit in with society a lot better um, and oftentimes become uh, charming because without empathy, without a whole lot of empathy, they can have a little bit, um, they have to figure out how to act. Um, otherwise, they'll just be revealed as, you know, these uh, morally bankrupt people. Um, so Charlie, uh, he's got this great writing style in his memoir. Um, he likes to say that, like, oh, yeah, I was brushing between, uh, you know, a couple of people and this wallet just happens to, you know, get caught in my fingers. And, you know, I tried to track the guy down, but he turned the corner, you know, it's like uh, and uh, the newspaper men like Mark Twain are doing similar things. They refer to, uh, you know, criminals being made guests in San Quentin. You know, there's all this sort of tongue in cheek. And Charlie's playing the game, but he's playing it. Uh, through a black mirror. He's reversing it. He's talking about, you know, oh, the criminal like me, um, actually just being an innocent bystander of circumstances. Um, and one can see that that's the way he uh, deals with people as well. Whenever he's arrested, uh, for the most part, uh, the officers tend to enjoy his company. He's oftentimes made a trustee in the prison, which means, um, you know, like he's got a greater leeway. In fact, in a couple instances, he's allowed to go outside of the jail. <laughs> you know? So at this point, like sometimes he sees like county jail is like, oh, it's free room and board. And what are the consequences if he gets caught robbing a watch? You know, it's like sometimes they give him 30 days. He gets the run of the place. He gets back on the street. In one instance, he ends up beating someone up outside and he's got to be hauled before the judge and is like, okay, you want like uh, a fine or you want 15 more days on your sentence? Um, but yes, after he gets out for of San Quentin for the last time, um, he's uh, in his late 30s. Uh, he is through with trying to, no, he tries to go straight just a little bit longer. He tries to get like some tailoring jobs in San Francisco, but he's complaining that no one will hire him if he explains that he just got out. He gets a job at one point and fakes a reference like, oh, I used to work on this tailoring shop. And I was like, oh, really? Uh, one of our employees did so as well. You'll meet him tomorrow. And Charlie realizes like uh, the game's going to be up tomorrow, so he just doesn't bother showing up. But at this point, he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about going back home to dear old mom. Um, he's going to make it in this area. So tell us about the murders, because they're they're the thing that's eventually going to give Charlie his nickname. It's 1872 May, and Charlie is in San Francisco. And Charlie, uh, he decides he's going to stop in one of the most uh, notorious uh, Bordellos in the city, and a young lady, um, she's French, um, French Caroline is her nickname, uh, Caroline Prunel. She's a little bit older than uh, Charlie, sits down next to him, and Charlie starts ogling her, and uh, she is used to gentlemen looking at her because she is a lady of the night. She is a scarlet woman. She's a prostitute. And they decide, like, okay, we're going to 
we're going to do this. Um, she's going to go home. He's going to get a little bit more liquid courage. Uh, and then he's going to follow her to her place. Um, and it's on the outskirts of Chinatown. So uh, Charlie wanders in and uh, oh, they end up in bed together. He gets a little bit more whiskey. Eventually, uh, she falls asleep. And this is part of the plan. Then he starts going through the place looking for where the money is. Because he'd heard her talking a little bit with the saloon keeper about money. It was mostly garbled, but he got the sense of like stuff was hidden. Now, we know um, that actually Caroline was having a problem with her pimp and she was hiding money from him. Uh, pimp slash boyfriend who lived with him. And he was going to come back. His name is Henry Beck. Uh, he comes back kind of in the middle of this, knocks on the door and realizes like, okay, uh, Caroline's got company. So he leaves and he's going to be a major factor in this. So Charlie can't find the money. Uh, so he eventually goes back about a mile to where he and Carrie are living. And Carrie's all upset. Like, where have you been? She's always upset of where have you been? And, you know, the idea of like, oh, I was spending time with a uh, prostitute, but only because I was going to rob her isn't going to satisfy Carrie. Um, but he tells her that she was about your size and, oh, yeah, her clothes would fit you. So it's like, well, let's go back and we'll at least get the clothes. So something like two in the morning and they wander back to uh, French Caroline's place and they go in like they owned the place, as uh, Charlie describes it, because you always want to give people who might be viewing you the impression that, you know, like, oh, you're a law-abiding citizen. Carrie is immediately hopping mad. She sees this pretty French lady on the bed, and she goes up to her and says, top of her voice, it's not really words you're supposed to repeat on a friendly podcast, but, you know, it's like, you bitch, you whore. That wakes up uh, Caroline, um, and then Carrie does her move, and like many serial killers, she's got her way of uh, killing somebody. She likes to step on their neck and she smashes down with murderous force on the back of Caroline's neck. And Mortimer doesn't realize at the time, but this kills Caroline. They end up talking with the cops uh, as they see them. They're outside City Hall. And Mortimer was like, okay, if Caroline is like robbed afterwards. Like this might give us an alibi. We'll just like start talking to the police officers. Like it's no big deal and acting cool. Um, and they do. They sit down on the doorstep for a while. Carrie's like, we should go back and rob her. It's like, why would you do that? Uh, they always bicker and argue. Charlie eventually wins the argument. They go back home. Um, they get a cocktail. Uh, now he goes to get some goes to the butcher and the grocer. This is like early in the morning. He sees the San Francisco examiner. Might be the Chronicle. Um, he sees one of the prominent San Francisco newspapers. And, oh my God, it's the, uh, it's the story of Caroline Purnell. She's dead. Uh, Henry Beck um, slept there that night, um, then came in, saw... Uh, Caroline was dead, notified the police, and now people are hunting the killer. But the cops think they already know who the killer is. They think it was probably Henry Beck. So Mortimer, without even realizing it, has found a classic fall guy. So how does the narrative swing around and, and return to Charlie and Carrie? And how do they become the focus of the police attention? Well, they both get arrested uh, in the next couple months. Um, for petty crimes, pickpocketing, you know, like you, you would think that they would leave San Francisco, but no, they don't. Um, Harry, for one, wants to stay, and Charlie almost always goes along with what Harry wants, even though their relationship of this course is extraordinarily fractured. Um, the police think they've got uh, Henry Beck as their guy. They arrest him. Um, but Beck tells his lawyer, uh, I'm innocent. And he explains it very earnestly as like, you've got the wrong guy. And uh, the lawyer goes to captain of detectives, Isaiah W. Lees, who uh, 
one of the Pinkertons of Pinkerton Detective Agency and one of the family members described as you know the greatest detective in the West. And Lee's has that reputation. And Lee's believes the lawyer. He's like, all right, um, but it's going to be difficult. Okay, but we know that uh, French Caroline's uh, earrings and ring were stolen because uh, Charlie didn't see it at the time. But Carrie did slip those off of the corpse after she'd killed French Caroline. Um, and Charlie eventually gets her to uh, give some of that to him, and he goes to a pawn shop. And Charlie knows that there are certain pawn shops that ask no questions. You don't get as much money by doing that for your stolen goods, uh, but they will take them. Um, so Lee's, Captain of Detective Lee's, he starts going through every single pawn shop in San Francisco, and he eventually uh, strikes pay dirt, and he recognizes, oh, that's uh, some of French Caroline's jewelry. And, okay, who uh, who did you sell that to, or you know, who sold it to you? And, well, he gave an alias. He said his name was Butler, but I, you know, I knew it was somebody else, and the name is actually Mortimer, which is, you know, Charlie's big alias. And so at this point in time, he's got aliases for aliases. Um, so Lee's puts it together that, okay, it's Charlie Mortimer, um, you know, the man that uh, Mark Twain called the worst criminal in the state. He is likely the killer. But at this point in time, Charlie has eventually convinced Carrie to, that we got to get out of San Francisco. And at this point in time, they are in Sacramento dealing with another murder. Will we say something about that murder as well? Because this is this is all starting to come together. It's all starting to crystallize. We're, we're nearly at that moment where Charlie and Carrie are about to go down. And there's this other crime that's going to happen as well. It's this amazing sort of Bonnie and Clyde story, you know, where it's like uh, they're getting away with so much. But the police are actively, you know, like looking at him, like he can't keep getting away with it. You know, he's used luck and charm and guile so much that he thinks, well, I could just push it forever, um, but it's not going to work. So here we are in Sacramento, and it's uh, several months after the murder of French Caroline, and uh, Mortimer and Carrie are once again bickering. Um, Charlie Mortimer, Charlie Flynn, he comes home drunk. She's upset. Where have you been? Oh, I know where you've been. You've been with those free and easy women. I can tell. Charlie's like, no, I haven't. You're making stuff up. He eventually, you know, like walks outside the hotel they're staying at. Um, it's near the waterfront where all the crime is. Uh, she comes out and is like, oh, you're going to walk to the next bordello huh it's like we can walk anywhere you want and the cops have been following him at this point they're not looking at them right now but oftentimes you know they've only been in sacramento for a few days and the police officers know his description they've had conversations they have teams that tend to follow him but they're not looking at him right now uh and charlie's talked to people and he knows where a big score is and Mary Gibson runs a one-woman bordello, and she has won some money through a lawsuit against the uh, railroads. Um, and the railroads are upset with her, and she's got a lot of money, and she decides she's not going to bank most of it because she doesn't trust the banks. Um, so this is the place to go. So they go to Gibson's, and uh, Charlie goes in first, sizes it up. Carrie follows a little later, and. Almost immediately, we get the sense that uh, Mary, who again is a little older, um, but definitely Charlie's type, is setting up a menage a trois with Carrie and Charlie. Um, she's like, oh, he looks so handsome. You know, why don't you give the man a kiss? If you're not going to, I will. And Carrie gives Charlie this big old smooch. And there's people in Gibson's at this point. There's a few people, but Mary leads Charlie and Carrie into a back room and it's like, oh, you can stay here and drink all you want and make all the love you want. You know, I'll be back in a little bit. 
and eventually Mary throws out the other patrons and closes up for the night. And, you know, while she's doing that, you know, Carrie's like, well, what do you think? And Charlie's like, like I don't know. Like, you know, look how grimy this place is. I can't imagine she's got a lot of money. And, you know, people have seen us. And Carrie's like, oh, don't worry about that. And I saw on the kitchen, you know, like there was a flash of gold. She's got like money in her pocket. You know, like this is the place. Charlie's like, well, I don't know. Mary comes back, you know, they leads them to the back bedroom. And Charlie kind of likes how this is playing out. He doesn't want to go through with it. It's kind of fun. Um, but then he gets cold feet and he stumbles outside. And, you know, he walks to a bridge and he talks with someone. He brings the person back to the bar. They're laughing and drinking. He leaves. Okay, now it's now it's time. Back bedroom. Uh, Charlie says, oh, you girls stay here. I'm going to excuse myself for a moment. Um, I'll be back soon. He gets out his skeleton keys to lock the front door because it's open. And he hears from inside, like uh, Mary shouting, what are you doing? That's your game. And Charlie bursts in like the hero. And Mary's got one hand in Carrie's hair. And uh, Carrie's got her hand in Mary's pocket. And Mary's got her hand clasped around her wrist. Uh, Carrie decided to jump the gun and tried to rob uh, or pickpocket Mary. Um, and Mary caught her, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, like, who are you people? Like, uh, we're calling the police, you know, like, uh, Charlie's like, hey, make nice. We don't need to do any of that. And then Charlie does his move. He tries to get his hands around Mary's neck, but Mary's a little too quick for him. And Charlie's a little drunk. Uh, and Eventually, um, Charlie has to hit her on the top of the head uh, with a bottle that smashes and breaks. And Mary shouts, murder, and gets one of her hands, rakes his face, tears off a lot of his reddish beard. Um, he's got deep scratch marks on his face at this point. And Mary's not incorrect. Uh, they decide the safest way to leave no witness is to actually murder Mary. And uh, Carrie um, grabs like a shard of broken glass, stabs her a few times, gets out her pen knife and slashes her throat, and then does her patented move. She steps on her neck with murderous force and says, Now, Charlie, don't you think I've got any nerve? And says to Charlie, like, okay, now your turn. And Charlie goes along with it. He also steps on Mary's neck. And now they've got a uh, bloody corpse on their hands. Uh, but rather than just flee the scene, they decide, Carrie decides she wants some of Mary's clothing. Um, so they stuff it all into a chest and they leave the place. And, you know, they're hauling this heavy chest back to their hotel, and they've got to get really near the police station while they do this. Um, uh, Charlie is completely upset, but he's also very drunk. He eventually hurls the chest into uh, basically a gutter, you know, the uh, Sacramento slough, and he's like, damn the chest. Uh, you know, they can get it tomorrow. Uh, they get back to the hotel. He tries the back gates. It won't open. Dogs are barking. People are looking at them. Uh, they get back into the hotel room, and Charlie's got a plan. And he always got a plan. It's like he has to establish an alibi. He has to show that he's out on the town. So, And he also wants to get more and more drunk. Um, so he goes out. He shoots dice. And then he gets in a fight with Mose Drew, who's kind of a giant of a man, who's a saloon keeper across the street. He ends up going to six bars that day. Uh, he calls Mose Drew a liar for something. And in the old West, you call someone a liar, you know, you're in a fight. Mose Drew smacks him across the face. Uh, he falls onto this matting. And then Mose Drew kicks him in the face. And the cops find Charlie outside the bar. He's lost his hat. You know, he's like bleeding from the face. There's blood on his pants, but, you know, like it's probably from his bloody face. They don't really notice the scratches, but, you know, like he's been kicked in the face. It doesn't, you know, seem to uh, affect things. 
they walk him home. They put him in his hotel room and uh, he goes to sleep. And the next day he wakes up. He's been to six bars that day. He's robbed a woman. He's killed a woman. He's got kicked in the face. He's been in a bar fight. This is a Charlie Flynn, Charlie Mortimer morning. Um, when I go out on the town, uh, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, where's my missing sock? I don't wake up and I've been like, wait a minute, did I kill a woman? It's like, where where are all these clothes? Where'd this money come from? But that's uh, that's Charlie for you. So he wakes up and now he's got to try to figure out what to do with his ungovernable girlfriend, all this money, and the fact that he's got to be the chief suspect for this second murder that he's committed in like a five-month stretch. Well, and those two murders are eventually going to give him his nickname, Hanging Charlie Flynn. And I think everyone can take a guess as to what happens next. But I'm going to give you the final word. How does it all come to an end for Charlie? Terry and Charlie turn on each other. And uh, they're such a good match um, because they are both kleptomaniacs and both uh, morally bankrupt people. Um, but it's the, the only way it could end. You know, it's like... Uh, all the jealousy, all the rage, all the bitterness, all the fights um, come out. And it's Carrie that turns on Charlie first, according to Charlie. And uh, Harry will eventually, almost like Black Bart, disappear in the late 1870s. And we don't hear from her again. We can only speculate on what happened to her. So we never exactly get her side of the story because, you know, newspapermen and uh, historians won't have a chance to track her down and be like, okay, well, let's get your side. But from what she talked to the police, like, oh, it was all Charlie. And she was an innocent bystander to like all of these murders. You know, in fact, uh, she wasn't even there. Um, but it will all come down to a uh, various scenes in Sacramento courts. And at the same time, uh, San Francisco courts are going to exonerate Henry Beck because they think they've got their man. They think they've got Charlie. And then Charlie, of course, is dragged to Santa Cruz because they finally uncovered that he was behind the Santa Cruz treasury job. So he's got three trials that he's, you know, tried for in uh, actually the Santa Cruz treasury job. He's not tried for. He's just a he's a witness, though, because they're trying Blakely and Blakely will have They've decided, what if Blakely set up this whole thing and robbed his own treasury with some Confederates? And Mortimer's going to testify that, no, not that's not the case. Uh, he was the victim. We threw him in his own jail. And Blakely will eventually get off. Um, but it's all going to come out. Like, uh, if it were the O.J. Simpson trial, it would be, well, it's more than just the murder. It's also be like, and we found out you know, in that same stretch that he uh, committed like a robbery in Vegas and, you know, in Santa Cruz. It's like everything's going to come out and he's going to be the, uh, Mortimer will be written about in uh, the celebrated criminal cases of America by uh, Chief of Police Thomas S. Duke in San Francisco. He's going to be considered, you know, like one of the, uh, one of the craftiest, uh, cagiest, craziest criminals of his era all right one last question it's simple when's the movie coming out <laughs> well i will tell you i did write uh treatments for a series um you know and i call it mortimer and uh, i wrote the first episode and it's a two-parter uh but i think in a story like this if uh if any Hollywood person got really excited, oh, they probably have someone uh, write it themselves. But it's very, uh, it's very visual. Um, there's all sorts of twists and turns and betrayals. Uh, it never slows down. I call it a knock your boots off western, a blood and thunder western. Um, I think it's one of those Jesse James slash Billy the Kid stories that somehow got missed, um, and I'm. Uh, really happy to bring it to life. I am so happy you brought it to life as well. I think it's an excellent read. It's like a, it reads like a crime thriller. 
that you could have on the beach, but it is such a good history because you've got excellent sources, whether it's Mortimer, whether it's the court records, whether it's uh, Mark Twain and his writings, it's it's exceptionally well-documented. Uh, and so it's a surprise that it's been missed, but I'm glad you brought it to life, Matt. And uh, thanks for coming back to the show to talk about your latest book. Thanks, Mike. Always happy to be here. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.